Hello and welcome back to Venture Studio and welcome back to our fascinating two-part interview with John Frankel, the founder of FF Venture Capital. I'm your producer, Kevin Weeks. If you're a fan of these interviews on Venture Studio, check out all of our previous episodes at venturestudio.org or soundcloud.com slash venture studio. Worried about missing an episode? Don't be. All you need to do is subscribe on iTunes. And we'd love to hear from you. As always, you can reach us on Twitter at Venture Studio. When we left part one last week, John was just starting to describe a tech future with just a few behemoths owning the lion's share of every market. This week, in part two, Dave and John discuss how to find growth in a zero-growth world and the potential downsides of tech shrinking the globe. Finally, they revisit John's prognostications from four years ago on this very show about the late-stage valuation bubble that we find ourselves in today and the implications on today's early-stage environment. With that, let's get back up to the Venture Studio office for part two with John Frankel. In the office, baby. You know, you're painting kind of a potentially Orwellian tech future in a way. How do you, as an investor, with that potential future in mind, approach the day-to-day? How do you reconcile that with uh, having to back small companies that have to confront this reality? Well, the, 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 I saw a formula, and I wish I could repeat it here. I saw it a couple of days ago, but it, it ties into something I've said for a long time. You know, big organizations are stupid, and the bigger they get, the more stupid they get. Mm. And so it's very tough for them to get out of their own way. It's very tough for them to disrupt themselves. The best companies do, but they're few and far between. So small companies, very nimble, very focused, build up huge opportunities, and become large companies in short periods of time. We're seeing it in transportation. We're seeing it in hotels. Uh, you know, here's what's fascinating about hotels. Mm. I was talking to a good friend of mine, one of the senior hotel analysts on the street. Occupancy rates have never been so good. Revenue per addressable room has never been so high mm. in a world of Airbnbs and HomeAways and the like. Think about that for a moment. Yeah. You know, what you think they're disrupting, they're not disrupting. They're expanding the market, making the market larger. But eventually, they're going to come for the hotels. Eventually, you know, they're going to come for the taxes. They expand the addressable market initially. So it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, I'll tell you, to make money back in 1999, 2000, in the last cycle, you really wanted to invest in tech or in telecom. Today, it's across the board. It's recruiting, it's car repair shops, it's drones, it's mapping, it's secure. It's, it's just, you know, across the board. It's not just the pure tech and telecom stacks. If we look at Indiegogo, one of our portfolio companies, you know, they expand the market because they're enabling people with causes and products and soon companies where they want to sell uh, shares. Right. Uh, they're enabling them to raise money from people they could never raise before. But ultimately, the platform is the mediator. Right. And then, so you're, they're disintermediating the mediators in 
certain aspects of financial services. And we roll this forward over 10 or 15 years, these crowdfunding platforms will become incredibly powerful. Right. So it's, it's an expanding of markets that you're seeing profoundly across the board. It's expanding, but it's disrupting. So every, every meal that plated ships is a meal someone doesn't eat in a restaurant or in a supermarket. I see. Now, for that to have an impact, take plated and HelloFresh and Blue Apron. You know, in aggregate, their revenues this year are sub a billion. Mm-hmm. Won't be there long. Right. Goldman says in five years it'll be, you know, four billion plus. Mm. I think Goldman's being conservative. Mm. Food business is one and a half trillion. Right. Right. So, you know, Kroger, I think, is 90 to 100 billion in revenue. Wow. So, you know, these businesses need to get to 10, 20, 30, 50 billion in revenue before they start impacting margins elsewhere. But just at the edge, at the margin, excuse the term, it's impacting. But it's just, it's so slight and so marginal, you can't see it today. Right. But... You know, there's huge brands can be built in this space. We think huge brands will be. And that's just food. You painted the image of that world of massive conglomerates and the Facebooks and the Googles, etc. You're not cowed by it in any way, it seems. You know, you see massive opportunity nonetheless. There's opportunity everywhere. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, This was headline story for one day. Procter and Gamble is spinning out their lower performing businesses. Mm-hmm. And I, I read somewhere it takes a growth rate when they spin these lower performing businesses from three to four percent to four to five percent. They're spinning out, selling other ways, getting rid of businesses that generate in aggregate eighty five billion in revenue. About the size of Facebook, different mouth, <laughs> different mouth. Right, right. Now, why are they doing this? They're doing this because out of nowhere comes someone like the Dollar Shave Club. Out of nowhere comes these businesses that are eroding the barriers to entry, the moats that Procter and Gamble has put around every business through strong brand and the like that have been built up over decades, suddenly the power of mobile, of social, of location, marketing, all of these dynamics which have changed dramatically. You know, it's funny. When you stop talking about solo mo, it actually starts having an impact. (laughs) (laughs) Right. 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 You know, take whatever buzzword is, two years after people start talking about it, it's either gone away completely or it's just, become, it's just become part of the background. It's disrupting these businesses. And I'm not you know, singling out Procter & Gamble. It's, you know, look at all established businesses out there. Uh, a good friend of mine, um, Lucerna, refers to these existing businesses as prunes. <laughs> They're slowly sort of shrinking in size. Right. And, and it hasn't stuck like unicorns. But the idea being that you've got the you know, a zero growth world with these high growth new companies coming along, and the old companies slowly, slowly sort of drying out. 
slowly, you know, getting smaller. Right. Fascinating. Or not. Right. And, you know, but overall, the world we're in is very tough to find growth. The technology that's being applied across everything is incredibly deflationary. In a deflationary world where you're replacing people with machines, so you don't have inflation, you don't have job growth, is a zero to negative interest rate world, which stimulates investment in capital, which encourages investment in disruptive technology. So it's a, you know, it's a virtuous or vicious cycle, depending on which side you're on. For us, it's virtuous. You know, we think we're in a multi-decade period of you know, just massive, massive societal change. And you're happy to be investing in early stage companies. You'd, you'd rather be nowhere else, I'm guessing. I, it's so much fun. We get to work with some brilliant people doing some amazing things. I mean, we're investors in Pebble Post. Pebble Post is disrupting direct mail, what people like to call junk mail, mm. by doing individual targeting based on online activity. It's an amazing business, amazing retention, engagement, everything else. Companies growing like a weed. In a business where I think the last innovation was like in 1975. So it's happening everywhere. It's great. Now, here's the flip side. Just because it's enablement for good, it's enablement for evil. And I, don't, and I don't use that word lightly. You know, the ability of Daesh to go and recruit people globally with amazing high-quality video production to describe a world without democracy, a world without capitalism, mm -hmm. to seduce people who want to go and kill others in, a, you know, it is a cult on steroids. And it's a death cult. And it is very, very sad, and it's enabled by all the things enabling right. good. You know, in a world where you, know, you believe in freedom of speech and freedom of association and all of the uh, items that we have in the U.S. Constitution and the beliefs of Western democracy, it raises very, very tough questions, questions that no one wants to have to think about. And I don't know. Maybe, maybe it'll blow off and go away, but I'm concerned. The world has become very small, and things are no longer confined by geographical uh, boundaries. It is a, a daunting uh, world at the same time, with all the great things that we're able to see and all the industries being disrupted, all the new players, etc. You have the, uh, the, that specter hanging over it all. Let me ask you this. Four or five years ago, you uncannily predicted this bubble in late stage valuations you were incredibly precise about it maybe let's finish and and we'll have you back obviously because i've caught you in a philosophical mood we're very lucky today. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe tell us what's going to shake out with these massive valuations on these companies and then by the same token what do you see happening in the next three or four years in the early stage environment so there's always cycles and the cycles within cycles but I think the big cycle is for positive growth uh, in startups, early stage, all the way through. And I think we're going to see some amazing companies come along. Uh, we think we're investing in them now, or certainly some of them now. Um, but we think over the next 5, 10, 20 years, 
the drivers behind this innovation are going to continue to grow. Um, on the late stage side, I think I said something along the lines that there'll be, you know, because I think you asked me where the bubble will be, and I said it'll be in late stage valuations, in companies when um, mutual funds and non-standard players, uh, which have turned out to be hedge funds, come into the market and bid up pricing. Right. Now, it's, what I see is very logical. Yeah, and uh, you know, again, I'm just going to use you know, Fidelity not as an actual example, but just as a placeholder name, Mutual Fund ABC. But if Fidelity on the IPO of a company wants $200 million position because of the size of money Fidelity has, and they're only going to get an allocation of $50 million, they have to buy the other $150 million in the aftermarket and bid up the price in the public market. So it is totally logical for Fidelity to come to the private markets just pre-IPO and build that position at what is probably a lower price. Right. Now, you know, it, it, we don't participate in this space. But if I did, I would not be buying common stock. I would be buying preferred stock. And we all know that preferred stock. But there's different flavors of preferred stock. And if you're a late-stage investor and you're smart, and I'm going to presume they're smart, they're investing in preferred stock unlike normal preferred stock, something that's much closer to debt. Preferred stock that has conditions, minimum guaranteed return levels. Um, I think we saw in the Square IPO that because it was priced below the last round, they got more shares. Yes, yes. Yeah, and then the thing trades up dramatically, mm -hmm. so they get a double win. Right. So I don't, you know, if that continues to play out, it's not necessarily discouraging. But to say the company was worth eight billion, ten billion, pick a number for your given unicorn, means in common language that the common stock is worth that, and they were not buying common, and the common stock is worth a lot less. And the more preferences you put on, the less the common stock is worth. But when you go public, all stock becomes common. And everyone's on the same playing field. The, the other thing that's really interesting is you cannot talk negative about a private company stock. You cannot short a private company right. stock. And so the public markets are the, are the real test of sentiment around a company. And if a company trades up initially and then trades off and goes down below its price, etc. Maybe that's telling you something. Maybe it's telling you they're not performing, or maybe it's telling you there was pent-up demand to short their stock, but there really wasn't anyone who was able to express that. And so the public markets give you that ability. Fascinating. So I, I think we'll continue to see unicorns. I think um, there are certainly some businesses we're having a hundred million in capital, five hundred million in capital, a billion in capital enables you to do things you couldn't do elsewise. Mm -hmm. I think we're less seeing people raising money at those prices and doing some of the naive things businesses did back in '98 and '99. So I think we're seeing less wastage of capital. Right. But I will tell you this: in certain areas. 
New York, Silicon Valley. They've only seen an economic up market. You've only seen expansion of the economy in Silicon Valley. And it's bled through to house prices, employee salaries, everything. So we're in a surge pricing economy. Mm. And when we hit a recession, and maybe the Fed can banish recession, banish cash, Mm -hmm. take us into negative interest rates, but let's assume cycles can't be abolished. Mm -hmm. When we hit a recession, if you get surge pricing in these times, do you get trough pricing? And what's that mean? And, and what has been built up that becomes unsustainable? And remember, a recession isn't going into a mall that used to be really busy and finding that it's empty. It's going into a mall and finding it 2% less busy than it was previously. That's a recession. Mm. It's a slight contraction. It's not an elimination of demand. It's a slight contraction in demand. And we have an economy that's very fragile, and you have the Fed raises rates. I don't know how they ever get to like six, seven, eight percent again. Um, they will. Something will happen. Something will break. Um, but something at this stage has to break to normalize things. Anyway, I feel like I'm I'm taking down a whole new philosophical um, <laughs> leg. I think we're 45 minutes into our 20 minute discussion. Yes. And I, 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 I apologize. Give me a microphone and I can... I no, can. it's fantastic. We appreciate you coming on. Uh, we'll do this again. I mean, there's so much to cover. We'll be talking. That sounds great. I really appreciate it. Show you around, give you a taste of the business, you know? Hey, everyone. Dave Lerner here. I hope you're liking the Venture Studio podcast. If you have any questions, feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hello, you can reach us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes and follow us on SoundCloud as well. Thanks. I appreciate the support as always. Mm-hmm.